0: goes a thousand dollars. Your shoes cost a thousand dollars. That one did
1: And the nerds who haunted themselves. I'm Stuart Moraine, and each episode I'm joined by a guest to talk about a movie they love and see where the conversation takes us from there. If you're a regular listener, thank you and welcome back to the show. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome to the show. Thank you for giving us a listen. Hope you enjoyed the film talk, and as always, and if you feel like doing so, you can keep the conversation going in the comments on our socials, in the And Why Not Facebook group, or wherever you see this episode posted. For this episode, I'm joined again by Ross Beamish as we discuss the 1997 David Fincher film the game. And now, with an advance warning for spoilers and all that introduction stuff out of the way, let's roll the trailer.
2: What do you get for the man who has everything? Everything.
0: everything. Happy Birthday sir. Thank you Maggie. I don't like her. So what brings you to town Conrad? Everything alright? October 12th. Nikki's birthday. This is for you. Consumer Recreation Services. Call that number. Why? They make your life fun. What are you selling? It's a game. A game? Specifically tailored for each participant. John, chapter 9, verse 25. Whereas once I was blind,
1: now I can see. Now I can see.
0: One day, your game begins. You either love it or hate it. Are you going to spend the rest of the evening prying at that clown's mouth? Mr. Van Orton, is everything all right? Ah, Mr. Van Orton. Have we met? I believe so. Why are you following me? Find out about a company called Consumer Recreation Services. They won't stop, Nick. He's in on it. I paid the bill I paid them more to make stop. I need the police who's gonna break into my house I'm to be avoided by a bunch of depraved children They're trying to kill me Who's behind this? Who did this to me? Why? This is all the game Right now I am extremely dangerous You're behind the whole thing, aren't you? They make your life
1: fun. Hello, Ross. How are you?
2: Hey, Stu. Lovely to see and hear you again.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, the people listening will not get the pleasure of seeing us, but yeah that's just for me exactly (laughs) it's what you get for being a guest it's the bonus (laughs) how's things how's uh how's life treating you
2: yeah but i'm actually just enjoying my half term right now so uh it's one of those um i think i must have said this again last time we met but i don't mean to rub it in i just uh just really enjoy a little break and in a chance to watch a few movies and um you know join you again this kind
1: yeah, of thing. I had two weeks off not long ago and it was lovely. Cuz I'm not one of these go out and do things I'll go out and do things but like you
2: know there's certain things where I just want a week where I'm just sat on the sofa watching movies. Hey, just don't tell anyone. Completely unwinding. All I've done last couple of days is replay Mass Effect. So, uh I'm amazed my wife let me do it because it's just been <laughs> pretty much all day just eating crisps and watching Mass Effect. And uh, the only person moaning is my uh, youngest son, saying that he can't get on the TV. So, <laughs> just lucky for him, we've got about six different screens in the house. But um, so I don't know what his problem is. But That's anyway, it. I know exactly what you're saying.
1: I suppose the downside for you is that you're off when the kids are off.
2: That is a downside. Whereas, that is true.
1: I, I I don't always manage to get my weeks off to coincide with the school holidays. So sometimes I'm just at home. It's like oh, I've got the whole house to myself. It's like being Young and single again. <laughs> don't During don't the hours it. of nine and three, when I have to go and do the school run <laughs> again. But Those lovely memories. Brought crashing back down to reality, when you're like, yeah, better go pick the kids up, mate.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. One day, one day they'll be old enough to walk back, and you can have the whole day to yourself. Yeah, but then they still come home, don't they? So. <laughs> yeah, well, change the locks. <laughs> don't
1: tempt <laughs> me. Don't tempt me. <laughs> Yes, I mean, that bleak look into my parent parenting aside.
2: <laughs> hey, this is not being recorded, right? This is just this private... No, this, this, we this, do. this is yeah. private blackmail
1: material. No this, yeah,
2: yeah. no, this is being recorded, unfortunately. I'll let this go out live.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, awesome. So, yeah... Um, we should probably get into the film, which anybody who's seen the uh, icon on the podcast episode will know what we're talking about. Um, we dragged you out of 1996 and into 1997 because we we're talking about the game. So mm-hmm. a little bit of info on the film. So directed by David Fincher, uh, written by John Bracanto and Michael Ferris, starring Michael Douglas, Sean Penn, James Rebhorn. Rebhorn or Reporn. I'm going Rebhorn. Uh, Deborah Carunga, uh, Peter Donat, Carol Baker, and... So here we go, Armin Mueller style, who's an actor that I love. He pops up yeah. in like um Peacemaker, and he's in. Have you ever seen The 13th Floor?
2: No, I haven't.
1: It came out the same title time as The Matrix, it's about similar sort of thing. It's so good, it went straight to DVD over here, I think. Um, but that's the thing for another time. Um, released in cinemas on the 12th of September 1997 in the US and the 10th of October 1997 in the UK grossed 109 million 423 648 worldwide on an estimated budget of 50 million according to imdb and roger Ebert gave the film three and a half stars out of four saying uh, one of the refreshing things about the film is that it stays true to its paranoid vision right up until what seems like the very end and then beyond it so that by the time the real ending arrives it's not the payoff and the re- uh, and the release as much as the final macabre twist of the knife um Gene Siskel on the episode of Siskel and Ebert that went out when they talked about the film was not a fan of the film. Um, he felt betrayed by the ending, but we'll get into that in a bit. Um, and again, I couldn't find a Barry Norman review for this, but Andrew Collins gave the film four stars out of five in Empire magazine at the time. So, supposed to kick things off. What are your memories of first seeing the game or playing the game?
2: Are you in the game now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't don't go. This is like. The whole late 90s matrix is things real and, you know, here we go. Well, I really am grateful that you opened the door to say to me before you invited me back on to say, you know, was there a particular film I'd like to discuss? And I'd suggest... It, it doesn't have to be from 1996. You know, I, although you <laughs> dragged me kicking and screaming out of it, but it was kind of like, a, do you want to come out of 1996? I'm like, no, it's my safe zone. Me up. Anyway, um I was really... Uh, really grateful that um you uh picked up on the game because it's it's linked into how I discovered it. Um uh, so originally I remember seeing the posters for it on the bus ride to school. Um and I uh, was vaguely aware of um you know be, it being a fincher film of course it was it was on the posters it had David fincher's name on it and of course it was famous from uh, 7 that preceded it. Um, And although I was relatively young at the time, you know, like a mid-age teenager, I I think that by that point, Seven had become very, very much established into pop culture. But anyway, fast forward a few years, because I was too young to have seen it at the cinema anyway, and, you know, it kind of just passed me by. Um, When I was at my first year in um, at university in Nottingham, there was uh, an independent video store at the end of the road. Uh, Do you remember those kids? And they would have those, you know, after they bought, I don't know how many videos they bought, I don't know, 20 different versions or whatever, after they they did sell them off, wouldn't they? They'd just get rid of them. Oh, buy next
1: rentals from the uh, bin in
2: the video shop. Exactly. And some of them would have cases and an awful lot of them wouldn't. And this was one that just didn't even have a case. And it just had a very simple printed sticker on the front, almost like, you know, some little sticky label stuck on the front that just said the game... And um I took it back to my house where I was living with 12, it was a 12-bedroom house, and we're living with all my friends from school and everything. And they were all massive fans of Fincher. They were they, we'd we'd come to university having watched Fight Club in the sick form, and we all were really deeply engrossed into the neo-noir, like late 90s stuff. And I watched it and I, I on an evening on my own or whatever. And no matter what I did, I could not convince them to watch this film, and it became a bit of a running joke. And I, I you know, no matter what, no matter what kind of way I pitched it to them, I was like, you know, it's the it's before five club but after seven, you'll love it. It's one
1: of those weird films, isn't it? That you try and describe what it's about. It's like um, because I had to. Watch, I watched it Monday, and Catherine was off as well. Uh, My wife and she was like, "What's it about?" I was like, "Well, there's this guy he gets like this interactive game thing to play, but it's like real life, not like on a computer." Like, saying shit.
2: Yeah, right. I was like, "Well, we're watching it anyway." (laughs) I said to Lee, my wife as well. I was trying to describe it to her, but without giving away any spoilers, and it's really (laughs) difficult. I kind of just (laughs) tell her the first act and then just go, "Well, you'll have to figure it out from there." But like, what what genre is this film? I was trying to classify this genre earlier. And I kind of came up with crime, mystery, psycho psychodrama. I mean... Yeah, because
1: I suppose the blanket thing it'd fall under is thriller, but it's not really... That doesn't feel right for it.
2: Hmm.
1: In some ways, it's almost a black comedy as well. Yeah. There are some really funny <laughs> bits there. And when you think about what they actually do to him as part of the game, yeah. it's like, that's so twisted. It's got to be a black comedy.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But but what I would say is this: although my mission at that time was to get my friends to see this film, um, I really like the fact that it's got a bit of a cult following now. Yeah. So this is this was very
1: much the forgotten Fincher, wasn't it? Once Fight Club came out, everybody sort of forgot about the game, and it was like, no, he did, he did seven, and then he did Fight Club, and that was his first two films. It's like, well, no, you missed Alien Three and the game. What the
2: shit is the game? Right, so as much as I want to publicise this film for for you and for me and for your listeners, let's just keep it for us, okay? It's one of those little cult films that we can enjoy. Well, just given that... how much
1: we'll go into spoilers, I'm hoping they've seen it by
2: now, otherwise we're going to completely ruin it for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, you can't really talk about it without spoiling it. That's so, it. Well, Yeah, this will now, be a really short episode. <laughs> go and watch, it's on streaming services now, go and watch two hours and seven minutes of this film and then come back.
1: That's it. I, I would proudly declare it's on Netflix, but last time we did that, they took it off by the time the episode came out. So <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, for me, I was the first issue of Empire I bought had Seven on the cover and had a feature on Seven in it. So that's what put me on the radar or put David Fincher on my radar. Not me on his radar. That'd be weird. Um. So yeah, when this film was coming out as like, you know, the new film from David Fincher, I was really excited for it. So I went to the cinema to watch it. A three in the afternoon show in on the 14th of October 1997. It cost
2: me £3.50. Well done. Well done. So See, you, you did add to its actual worldwide. That's it. I, I am
1: £3.50 of that.
2: <laughs> See, I'm not. I just 100 million. The, I bought the X rental version. So I bought it on cheap. video
1: when it came out as well. And then I bought the DVD and then the
2: two disc DVD.
1: I need to upgrade to the Blu ray. There's an arrow. Release a it now. Narrow do good releases.
2: So. Yeah. that's that's the one version I've got. So David Fincher, I did actually buy at least one, where the money probably went a little bit to you, maybe. But who knows?
1: It was, yeah, it's a great film to have seen in the cinema. I weirdly re- don't remember, you know. Sometimes you don't remember the film, but you remember the experience of seeing it in the cinema, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um. Um, like you want to talk about later a bit the sound. The thing you know with Fincher, even if it's not a very good Fincher film, is you know he's painstakingly gone over every fine detail of it. Most definitely.
2: And that's what's one of the things that attracted me to this film. Um, enough to really want to get these so-called friends of mine, uh, <laughs> who, these sycopants who said they like Fincher and wouldn't even watch his second film. Come on, guys. Uh, if you're listening to this, I'm going to keep ribbing on you. Um but he was he's the master of neo-noir movies. And that that to me was that late that mid to late nineties era was just peak postmodern, uh neo-noir. Just some of the great the great movies of the decade were produced then. Of course, a number of them were his Seven, This, Fight Club. Um, but we've also got movies like The Last Seduction. Yeah. And and part of that is what you were just about to describe, your experience was part of the sound design. So before, I don't want to rain on your parade or no, 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 carry on. Sea. I mean,
1: that's it, it's difficult to describe your cinematic experience of a film, especially one that was like 26 years ago now, yeah, or coming up on 26 years by October this year. Um, I it, it's weird to see think this film was on the side of a bus kind of thing because yeah. be- between watching that and this today, I've also watched Ant Man 3 at the cinema, so i If I suddenly start talking about, like, you know, when Michael Douglas shrinks down, I've got me Michael Douglas films mixed up.
2: (laughs) That would have been a weird trick for CRS to pull on him, send him to the quantum zone. It would have some of the shit they pull off on him, to be fair.
1: (laughs) How far-stretching is CRS?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I love that you noticed that you must have seen throughout the film. There's like 20 different companies that have yeah. the initial CRS, and it's like cable repair service and all these other things. And it's the taxi like driver's high, the obvious one. And yeah, how on the nose is this? Like, he's he's surely an observant guy, and it's like everywhere's CRS. It's... Uh, but that ties into the whole plot hole stuff that I'm no doubt like, we'll talk about later as well. But uh...
1: yeah, I mean, it's to a certain degree it's one of those movies that possibly works best the first time you watch it. Yeah. So I think the more you watch it, the more you become aware of things, the more things either don't make sense or just a slight leaps in logic that are a bit too far. Still perfectly enjoyable to watch, but I think that you'll you'll never get that first-time experience of just being completely hooked up. Because I remember being... The ending didn't bother me. I know it bothers a lot of people, and we'll get onto it a bit later. But I know that's what ruined it for a lot of people. I I didn't feel cheated by it because I was just gone along with it and I liked the characters so much. I was just quite happy that it resolved that way rather than
2: no agreed. And um when we're talking about the more technical specifics of like the writing and so forth, when we could talk about the the narrative qualities of it a bit later, and like you, the, the ending, it it didn't even occur to me that it would bother people because. As we'll talk about it probably a little bit later, the the whole point of this is that there's no dramatic irony in the film whatsoever. No. We we experience the film as Nicholas experiences the film, and his shock in his, everything that happens to him at the end. We've experienced it, and as you just said, without it's lovely watching it for the first time. There's that line in there when is it when he meets his friends and they say, "Oh, wouldn't it be great if we could go back and and." experience it's it. when he
1: overhears the guys in the club talk in the locker room in the club talking about crs doesn't he and then he decides to buy Correct. him drinks and go over and start talking to them
2: which and you prob- then
1: see them in the green room at the end
2: right and and that's probably the most postmodern thing about the whole thing because that's like us as the viewers or the spectators wishing that we could have that experience of going back to see yeah. It. so uh, that's why in many respects i do hope as you as you said at the start of this podcast that your listeners have seen this film before they listen to this because if you haven't you go and watch this film before we ruin any more of it for you you need to go in as
1: clean as possible i mean it's quite nice it's been about possibly a decade or so since i've seen this film yeah um just because it's sort of one of those films that just drops off your radar kind of thing um but yeah so it was quite nice going back to it semi-fresh in that, you know, I remembered a lot of the beats as they were happening, but some of the finer details I hadn't yeah. retained. So so I think I saw it at the cinema, bought it on video, watched it a few times on video. I don't know if I ever actually watched the DVD. I bought the DVD, but you, you know what it's like when you're like, you know, 20 something and just being like, oh, I like that film. It's only three quid. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Piling up DVDs that you never actually get around to watching, but you know. If the world ever goes up, you'll at least have entertainment.
2: <laughs> well, that's what, it's, uh, when the, that massive Carrington event happens and all Netflix and everything is wiped out, <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be hailed as lords of entertainment. They'll be knocking, Can, borrow your DVDs. And we'll be, like, brushing off the cellophane wrappers going, no, this is my pristine copy, you can't have it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be like, yes,
1: but you need a membership card that costs a small fee. <laughs> yeah. Call me Blockbuster.
2: There's no bargain bin here, my love. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, if I could, if I could just mention about the sound design because uh, you mentioned before about how that was part of the experience that stuck with you for how long has this film been out for? Like twenty, it's gonna be twenty six years this year. Ninety seven it came out. Twenty six years, wow. Well, mm-hmm. So of course, yeah, I saw it a bit later than you because I got it in a VHS bin. But um, this so the sound design something that really struck struck me. From the first viewing of it, and then has just lived with me ever since. It's this what how could I only describe as it? like loud whispering? Um, and it's it's Fincher did it a lot, especially in his earlier work, but even even films like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and to a lesser extent the social network, he it is the the sound design was incorporating this, but it's really, really um prevalent in the game, partly because it's so heavy on the dialogue. Yeah. Um, and actually, just to mention, I thought we talked about the writers as well. Of course, it's a Fincher film, but it's written um, quite a few years before, wasn't it? I mean, uh, just to, sorry to sidetrack, but talking did, about- yeah,
1: I think he was going to do this one before Seven. Yeah. And then I think either Michael Douglas wasn't available at the time, so he went and did Seven, or Brad Pitt became available for Seven. But That's one right, of those yeah. things. So.
2: And I'm so I'm glad it worked out this way Ryan. I'm glad that yeah. the game the seven came first and then the game came after because I think Yeah, because
1: seven- I I don't think this would have put him on the map like Seven did. Which no. Seven's an interesting film for me because it's a film that I depending on my mood, I either really like it or I just, it leaves me cold. Yeah. I appreciate it as, you know, a film, but as a story, sometimes I watch it, I'm just like, yeah.
2: I don't need Well this. the thing <laughs> is Seven, as I as I kind of alluded to before, Seven became part of the um the cultural tapestry of yeah. the mid-90s, didn't it? Became part of the zeitgeist of what it was to be a nineties movie. As I was mentioning about the kind of that mid to late nineties neo-noir seven really encapsulated that films like Sleepers and, and other movies other movies is kind of similar. They all they all have that kind of like bleak noirish, modern noirish kind of style. Um, is it even like
1: the Morgan
2: Freeman Alex Cross two movies that you did, Kiss the Girls and
1: Along Came a Spider. Yeah, I think yeah. without Seven, again, it seemed like everybody was trying to snap up detective stories and if they could cast Morgan Freeman as that detective.
2: Yeah. but And that's why I'm glad that this one came after because after Alien 3, I think if he'd have made the game, even if it was exactly the same, then I don't think it would have hit culturally as strongly as Seven did. And therefore, I don't think Seven would have following. Yeah. Uh, so no, I um, think
1: this film I think what's divisive for people I like say is the ending. I think some people really like the rug pull and then the second rug pull. And yeah. other people are kind of like, you know, it's a film with a great idea, but it's looking for an ending. And I think there's some truth in that. Yeah. I, I can see why people can't some I think Gene Siskel was like it as well. It's like, you know, it's a great premise, but it's just you're betrayed by
2: the end. Well, if I can would you like to talk about the end now and then we can kind of fill it yeah, in? Yeah, I box. don't mind. We could jump all over. I don't mind. <laughs> all right. So if I can just finish off the point about the sound. The yeah, yes, sorry. I, that that kind of ties into the like the wider narrative stuff actually. And then of course the end is the conclusion of the narrative anyway. Um but so these this this quiet whispering when they're talking, and there's a particularly good, well, pair of examples that um just rewatching it today, I picked up on one is one Nicholas and um, the female character. Um, Christine Chris, is that yeah Chris yeah Christine she's they're, they're trying to escape the attack dogs and they're running across the the metal um fire escapes The 1000 thousand dollar shoe in the thousand and oh is your shoes cost a thousand dollars well that one did. that one did so <laughs> it is a comedy and um they uh and then they jump into the bins and everything when they're when they're talking they've got this kind of like almost whispery kind of thing but it's really heightened
0: and what are you a czar or something alright I think if we drop from here the garbage will break our fall I
2: think not and then also at the end when um she's getting into the taxi and she invites him for a coffee and again it's that kind of she's, I mean, she's got a, just, just the most amazing voice as well yeah. like, husky sultry um, femme Fatale <laughs> You can't quite do it. Sorry, I completely ballsed it up there. But the, it's just amazingly sultry and sexy, and um, he and and Fincher, his sound recordist and sound designer, just find a way to really encapsulate that and then enhance it. And it then... is that perfect for voice, isn't it? Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and another reason to go back and re watch this film just for the and Douglas is great as well, is it? For, for
1: well, yeah, because Michael Douglas does two things really well he does your romance in the stone, wisecracking, yeah, you know, Indiana Jones knockoff, he but, did, you know, with he the did. utmost respect. Um, and he also does like these sleazy, stoic kind of guys as well. And this is sort of he gradually comes out of that sleazy, not sleazy in this film, but he's very stoic and he does cold almost, well, I mean, he is kind of unlikable. I think the fact he's Michael yeah. Douglas makes it because he's awful to, like, serve than that.
2: Yeah, oh, but this
1: was iced tea. That was my favourite little bit of shit. And the, when the woman's on the phone when he first goes to a CRS. Yeah. And she's, well, this is... like, still mid-conversation, yeah. he's like, I received this? Yeah. <laughs> I well, I'd, I
2: wait. amongst my other notes, I'd written about how I thought that this was this. I know it's a small role, not a small role, because basically he's in every shot and every scene. But a small role in terms of the impact that it had for him. But I still think this is like peak Michael Douglas yeah. era. So for me, he was a little bit like an older, wiser Gordon Gecko. Yeah. Um. Or or maybe like um a more controlled, especially when he starts to lose his mind a bit, a more controlled defense yeah style character so like some of his most iconic characters have been kind of like refined and distilled into this one which works brilliantly because he's just he's he's just his age is is a good age to be playing this character as well i think he's playing a 47 year old character but i'm sure he's a bit older than that
1: yeah it's yeah 47 because that's the age his dad committed suicide isn't it
2: yeah um and then, of course, I mean the other actors as well. Of course, we've the, the whole supporting cast is great because it has to really be made. But it's it's almost like again a a, a kind of postmodern self-referential thing about filmmaking with the green room at the end and the yeah. fact that the the fake books on the bookshelf and the and the the fridge that opens and there's nothing in it and it's like this is how you dress a set, but it's not a movie. It's the, it's a lived experience. Um, which is just so um, a facade of an experience um of course sean penn is is i think really good in it and um deborah kara kara unger is of course the the actor with that amazing voice and she's she's really super in it yeah with with the um i keep going back to the sound design sorry but it's it's no it's fine it's not just the voices it's also what i thought was the the soundtrack as well I'm sure you, you really appreciate that one with the, the piano and the low strings and the low horns. Yeah. Just really harks back to some kind of almost like L.A. Confidential-style soundtrack. Who did do the score? I meant to look it up beforehand. And I'll Have forgot. a look now, but for me, for those of you who are listening and you haven't actually, or you can't remember it or you haven't seen the film yet, in which case, go and watch it now. Um it's got this really unsettling atmosphere to the whole film, and the soundtrack really heightens that. And, of course, films, these technical aspects don't work in isolation. There's, the opening is just a really super example of Show Don't Tell with the flashbacks that happen reoccurringly throughout the film. of that
1: like, like old movie footage, old eight, movie footage, it gorgeously shot.
2: The 8 mil kind of movie yeah. footage, yeah. Which, which is constant and it, it's at the start it's at the first act and the second act and then of course at the very end when he does jump off the building um and the score just just synergizes with it so beautifully yeah howard Shaw did the score oh uh, there we go so now that explains why
1: yeah um, yeah I mean like we said it's a Fincher movie so you know everything was meticulously planned but it's got gorgeous shots in it you could take any panel, any frame from this film, and it's masterfully put together.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there's there's only, there aren't that many films, even great films, that I think that you can actually take a, go to pretty much any part of it and just go, right, we can make a poster from that. Yeah. I mean, when a great example of that would be um, Once Upon a Time in the West. I think you could pretty much pause at any point in that film and just go, print. Yeah. (laughs) And then you have a wonderful print off it. Um, But uh, from uh, you mentioned before that we have to be very careful when we're looking at facts and things off the internet and trivia from IMDb in particular. But I find it quite interesting that um, Finchard apparently utilized uh, a different kind of 35 mil print for this one. Right. That uh, he incorporated into both Fight Club and um, a kind of slightly more advanced version into Panic Room as well. And when you see when, when I forgot you look he did it, Panic Room, sorry,
1: I said I forgot he did Panic Room. Yeah, you
2: know what? He, it was only when I read this fact I went, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> so we ironically we were saying about like, um, I knew he
1: did something between Fight Club and like The Social Network, and, but
2: I was just kind of like I know he did but, something, what was he? <laughs> We said that the game was his forgotten film, and it's Panic Room is his forgotten. Yeah, but um, yeah, but they actually do share a similar kind of um, the way that it's framed is a similar kind of look. Not just his classic Fincher whip pans, and actually towards the end of this, when um Nicholas Nicholas the character Nicholas is running up the stairs and everything, you've got classic Fincher whip pans and and vertical tracking shots and everything, LR Fight Club, yeah. but also just in terms of the the framing of the 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 way that the, the shot looks within the frame, and he cut his teeth using that technology on this film, which you can see then incorporated onto his latter two.
1: Yeah, I mean, Fincher's a fascinating guy, anyway, um, as a filmmaker. Um... I mean, there's two kinds of people that came from music videos. Those that, you know, use music videos as a stepping stone, but actually studied their craft with it. And those that are just kind of like, take those music video sensibilities in the wrong way to their films. Yeah. So like you, actually I'm not going to name names because I don't like slagging directors off, (laughs) you know, (laughs) they're doing better than I am, but (laughs) it's, it's a criticism that's leveled sometimes at Michael Bay and your McGees and that sort of thing, you know, that they bring that music video sensibility to their films, which depending on the film works, it's not necessary for me, but I think Fincher, I don't know, he's just a craftsman. Is it? And you feel that
2: craft in it. Is it now the right time to talk about what surprised me? And I had no I didn't realise this until I read it today, um, just doing a bit of pre-research on this. Is it now time that we talk about how Fincher himself said that he's not proud of this film? Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. There's pretty much two films. One that he'll never. Two films he's not proud of. One that he'll never talk about, which is Alien Three, which is incredibly frustrating. Incredible. That's pretty much the only voice left that's not spoken about Alien Three. That I'd love to hear, like you know, his experience. But then it sounds like it was such a traumatic event for him. Yeah. You've only got to watch that Alien Three documentary on the box set. Kind of get an idea of what he was going through, yeah. Because if you just look at you know, um Vince Ward was the director for, wasn't it? It was like you, my favorite bit in that thing is when somebody turns around to me and goes, "You don't know your assistant's spying on you for Fox? Yeah, yeah. And I, I and imagine there was a lot of that for Fincher as well. Um, and of
2: course, he was a young man at this at the time. It was he, like, but, Alien
1: but, Three was his first film. Yeah. I know they like to get directors fresh, but. Ridley Scott, it wasn't his first film, and um, Aliens wasn't James Cameron's first film. Yeah. They cut their teeth on the thing. Imagine, as your debut as a filmmaker, cutting your teeth on an
2: Alien film. And not just that, the, a film that had been publicised before they'd even had a script for it. Yeah, because... So the, the adverts were out saying this film is going to be released in this month of this year. It. And it, it heavily really? implied that they were coming to Earth. Yeah. And uh, they're like, oh, by the way, uh, Fincher, you, we've seen your innate talent. You're going to direct this. Oh, brilliant, wonderful. I've got a great vision for it. Uh, but then, obviously, we're going to put Spies on set. Like, wayland do <laughs> stuff. tiny stuff. So.
1: We love your vision, but we would just want to trim it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Whereas yeah. I think by the time he got to Seven, he
1: was a bit, you know, nobody was really watching him that much. He had what a lot more me? freedom to do his own thing. And then I think with the game, off the back of Seven, he was just kind of, yeah, do what the fuck you like. So we don't care as long as you keep it in on budget and
2: Yeah. But this is this is the thing, it really surprised me of especially since this is say like a, a cult film now. Not many people really have watched this film. No. If they have, it was a one and done and kind of long forgotten um kind of deal. Um but he he the quote that I read was that he said he he never should have made it.
1: Yeah, it's he said even his wife at the time told him that he shouldn't make it. Yeah. I think she cited possibly in the thing I read. when we getting it wrong? That you know, it was one of those ones. It was a great idea, but it didn't have an end.
2: Yeah,
1: and what, I don't know whether that was the end that we got was in place, or whether that was just the end they could come up with. Um, I I mean I can kind of see it as a risky move for your third movie, especially yeah. building off of the success of. But then you remember Fight Club wasn't a massive success at the time either.
2: No, again, another, and that's another thing about his greatness, Fincher is he he makes great cult films, and he also is a very brave director, very brave creative. You say he's meticulous; he absolutely is. He's, yeah, you know, you've he's only got mad. to listen
1: to the commentary on Fight Club for like how many t- takes he did of Edward Norton being thrown down the stairs. Yeah, he's like ninety-nine. He's like, which take did you use? He's like
2: second one. Yeah. <laughs> But to me, he is, I, 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 it's very difficult to distill why. Yeah. The, to me, he is the greatest living director of his generation. There are other great directors, Scorsese, Spielberg, um, you know, there are others greats, but of this particular sliver of a generational Gen X gen director, yeah. to me, he's, he's the greatest
1: yeah yeah no definitely i mean i think this film benefits from fincher and michael douglas in the lead i think without either of those two with a lesser director or a lesser leading man i don't think it would have worked there's something about michael douglas that like keeps you captivated because a lot of his dialogue a lot of his scenes he's not talking
2: yeah and yeah and yes And when he's just stumbling through Mexico, you know, looking down trodden or um, angrily entering the office and chucking the Polaroid pictures down on it, this is what I was saying about him being peak Michael Douglas at this point, even though it's kind of like a forgotten Douglas film in many respects. He's just brilliant. But let's not take away from the supporting cast. Oh, no, no,
1: no. this, This film was sold on being a David Fincher and a Michael Douglas film. So yeah. that was why I think... I mean, like you say, the supporting cast are great. I mean, Sean Penn wasn't massively on my radar at that point. I knew Chris Penn because he was in Reservoir Dogs and yeah. Um, But Sean Penn was in a lot of... He was in a lot of films, but not films I'd particularly seen. It's weird how young he looks in this as well.
2: Yeah, it is, isn't it? Really strange. Wasn't, yeah. it, that, wasn't it that Jodie Foster was originally going to play his sibling, the, the Sean Payne character. And then there was a disagreement or she couldn't make it, or or she wanted to be Michael Douglas's daughter. And both Fincher and I think Douglas went, no, we, we can't go with that. And it was a bit weird because allegedly um, uh, Jodie Foster's production company was helping to produce or helping to fund this film. Right. Um, and... It, I don't
1: know, I... Jodie Foster wanting to be his daughter doesn't ring true for me. Jodie Foster's a smart cookie. Yeah. It doesn't seem like something that Jodie Foster would man. I could see her as like his younger sister. Yeah, I could see her in the sibling role. Um, I'm not. I don't know we if also... it works better being a brother, even sister.
2: Even if it did, even if there was some kind of falling out, it couldn't have soured the relationship that badly with because well, no, of course she, they were they they panic panic room. Room, <laughs> and she was the lead role in that so um, whatever happened behind the scenes, it couldn't have been that catastrophic
1: Yeah, I, I it, that might be the case, I just don't get the feeling from Jodie Foster that she would have been like, no I want to play his daughter Um
2: what do you think about the the prospect that again take it with a pinch of salt? But apparently Jonathan Mostow was going to direct this back in '93, in the year of Jurassic Park. Interesting,
1: because Jonathan Mostow did that. Does um, it break down with Kurt Russell? Yeah, that came out in '98, '99, where he breaks down and his wife gets taken. Yeah, um, that's a really good. Tensor, I could see Jonathan Mosto doing it, but then you also remember he did Terminator 3, which is yeah. fine at
2: best. Yeah, and th- that's, here's the thing that's probably where I think most people would recognize the name Jonathan Mosto from would be Terminator 3, which again was a weird choice following James Cameron to yeah. then go Jonathan Mosto, and then of course Fincher was following James Cameron's, but. Um, everything all leads all roads lead to Alien 3 one way or another don't it because again um, Breakdown's a nice tight little thriller yeah
1: um, largely underseen I think it mostly like you know didn't get many cinema screen showings here and then largely was better received on video I but that's me where this, I saw it
2: but if this film that so that film Breakdown came out in the late 90s right
1: yeah it's him and Kathleen Quinlan I think
2: yeah so and JT Walsh This was supposedly going to be directed originally back in 93, which seems to be a very much more, innocent is the wrong word, but the late 90s were far more, this pre-911, this late neo-noir era, they were a lot, I wouldn't say bleak, again that's the wrong word, but a lot more cynical. A lot yeah. more cynical than the early '90s. You know, coming out of the '80s, it's, you know, think of films like um, Jurassic Park, which, if it was made in the late '90s, would have been a lot darker and a lot more yeah. cynical. If we think about it, it's, well, it's, look it's, at the Lost World. <laughs> exactly, look at the sequel, then that's the darker version, right? And even that in itself was mid '90s, and this film doesn't really seem to. It fit very well for me in the early 90s period, despite it being written obviously before 93. For it to be well, yeah, that's it.
1: I mean, the 90s equate to being like the remake of the 70s to a certain degree. So you get these psychological thrillers like Breakdown, like this, like Seven, that it's like your parallax views, your Three Days of the Condor of the 70s kind of paranoid thrillers. Um, and it was just the 90s was an exciting time for tarantino mm. whether you like him or not kevin smith uh, danny boyle all these exciting indie films coming out as well yeah um, i think people were a lot freer and more comfortable to experiment in the 90s weirdly it's sort of i've got a book that's like you know the 90s being the that's about the 90s being the greatest decade of movies yeah um, which is interesting, and um, oh no, I think the book I've got specifically focuses on nineteen ninety nine as like the best year for movies. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, the nineties was—I don't know—it's—it's it's strange to think of the nineties when you think of a film like the game now it would go straight to Netflix,
2: yeah, or yeah. would be snapped With- up by Amazon Prime, something like that. It wouldn't get a cinema release. So when, when I, you know, I teach film, right, and one of the, one of the units we teach is about the, the, the comparison. It's the only comparative element, and it's about the comparison between classic Hollywood and new Hollywood. And um, classic Hollywood, I pick the most classic, classic Hollywood film there is, which is Casablanca. And then new Hollywood, I pick, which is arguably the first of its kind, was Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Um. And in many respects, what you're referring to is like the second renaissance of New Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, the very latest films that I can pick from that era are um, towards the the mid '90s. Um. But this, what you've just encapsulated there, is exactly the kind of the move from the the kind of the classic Hollywood safe ground, the kind of haze code. These are the rules. These are the restrictions. This is what audiences were expecting for. Almost decades, actually, from their movies, which is why it became quite stale and quite old. Yeah, into new groundbreaking movies from new groundbreaking directors like Arthur Penn and Lucas and Spielberg and Scorsese, and you know the list goes on and on and on. Um, and then these were the ne- the new generation, the Gen Xers, like you know the the new guys. And but that couldn't happen now for exactly the reason you just said, because this is the kind of film. Ironically, because we both saw it on Netflix in the last yeah. couple of years, this is the final film that would be just go straight to Netflix, would probably get about a month's worth of watches at that, and then it would just drip off the radar. You wouldn't even get it in a bargain basement bin. No, that's it. Because, I mean, now, I mean, I've talked about it
1: before and other things. You either need to be a micro budget indie film. Yeah. Or a 200 million blockbuster. So you either need to be a Marvel movie, an Avatar, something you know, DC superhero movie, yeah. Mission Impossible, or you know, a Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is a franchise in himself at this stage. Yeah. Um, something like this would just slip under the radar. It might get a week's release at the cinema. But then studios don't seem to know how to handle them now. It's like um, well, Confess Fletch was one of my favourite films last year, but they had no idea I had to sell that film. It sort of came and went really quietly. Well, which I think was a part- shame because it was one of the best films of the year.
2: Part of the problem is and it ties back into how I discovered this film: is that physical media is just people don't go for it. I don't know whether it's just a convenience thing, or they don't—they're minimalist and they don't want the clutter. I mean, for Christ, that's what lofts are for, isn't it? Like, I just chuck all my DVD yeah. boxes up there, and I just keep an envelope full of. A oops, discs, just, same I've, as me, yeah. I've, I've got just got like told six all boxes the, of discs. By the way, my address—you'll never know. All you thieves coming <laughs> to the like. No, I'll I put it in the show notes. <laughs> uh, you might want to bleep that bit out about where I've got my thousands of pounds with the DVDs, but um, it is no. that, again, we've talked about it before though. That when you went to the video shop,
1: you'd spend time looking at films because you didn't want to waste your two quid or whatever on a film that is going to be crap. And but if you did happen to pick a film that's crap, you just spent two quid on it, so by hell, you were watching it, yeah. Whereas what? now, if you're on Netflix and you're like, oh, the game sounds good, and you get 20 minutes in, you're like, yeah, no, I can't be bothered with this, I'm going to put something else on
2: yeah and then you then you don't have the patience to wait to see what would happen yeah um and actually of course maybe your first reaction was one that would have changed at a later time if you and you've had the water cooler conversation and you could have lent the vhs version of the game to your uh colleague or your housemate who will never watch it by the way um and then they will have had that pleasure from it um but it's the I think, was it um, Matt Damon said in an interview relatively recently? I'm not sure if I got this quite right, where he said that basically what you just said, that mid-budget films, say, of 50 to 80 million, the ones like The Game just don't get made there. They just don't because there's no there's no real massive profit margin in it. You can have a very, very low budget film of maybe up to, say, five million dollars with um another five million for for distribution and for marketing. So 10 million investment, which is essentially pennies when it comes to films. Yeah. And if it makes if it makes a hundred million back, then you've just made for every dollar you spent, you've made 10. So it's a great return on investment. And then was of it... course the sorry, go on. Sorry, I was gonna say
1: look at like the Fablemans. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to watch The ones in the cinema, but it was on its shit times, because they just don't know how to market them or where to put them in the schedule. Um, Same with Empire of Light. I wanted to see Empire of Light, but it just didn't have any decent... It was either too late in the evening, which when you got kids going to a 7 o'clock show and it's like, that's most of your evening gone. Yeah. Um, They didn't do any decent afternoon showings. I always thought once my kids hit a certain age, it's like, that's great, I can go to the cinema... As long as I'm done by school runtime, but there's nothing good on in that like midday to two in the afternoon slot.
2: Well, I, I mean, this is unpacking a whole load of can of worms. Yeah. With you. But another another film that I teach is um, La La Land, which it's essentially is, as you may or may not know, it was a love letter to classic Hollywood. And I, I teach them almost in sequence where I do classic Hollywood, new Hollywood, and then contemporary American film. And, right, um, have you, you know, La La Land? I know of it. I've never watched it. It's okay. it's it, honestly, it's not one that I'd have been drawn to. But as a side note, I'm really glad I watched it because yeah. although I dislike most musicals, I really enjoy this one. So and yeah. I enjoy teaching it. But there's an interesting part in it where Ryan Gosling's character Seb is um, basically a, and it's problematic in its many many senses. Yeah. But <laughs> let's ignore all that stuff for five minutes. Um, he's he's uh, a, like a saviour of classic jazz essentially and there are other characters in the film that are just saying look just it's the old world it had its time just move on and he's saying no it's still got value it's still great but it's dying on the vine and i wonder if you and i are kind of like that ryan gosling style character where we are looking back fondly at a time that maybe has just gone technologically it's just moved on yeah but we're desperately trying to through through mediums like your podcast, trying to con- <laughs> trying to convince people to invest in those mid budget films that otherwise would we just miss. I, I think there's always nos-
1: Well, there's always a rose tint with any form of nostalgia. So you don't remember the wanting to rent the game from the video shop, but it, they'd all been rented out, so you'd have to wait a week and take potluck mm. on whether you got it then or not. Whereas now, if you know it pops up on Netflix, you can watch it now. Don't matter how many other people want to watch it. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think people see the benefits of it that way, but I just miss, and again, we miss it because we experienced it, whereas our children would never have experienced going to town on a Saturday and going in M V C and buying an
2: under Siege on video or whatever. M V C, that was the name of the shop. My wife and I were walking past the shop at, uh, a couple. Yeah. To go, and she pointed it, and went, "What was that one called?" And it was just—I could picture the color blue or whatever, but I couldn't remember the name of it. So back in got- the
1: height of back in the glory days of it, you we went to M V C, check the price there, H yeah. M V, check the yeah. price there, our price, Woolworths upstairs in Smiths, downstairs yeah. in Debenhams, had some videos.
2: Yeah,
1: so uh, you yeah. trek all over town, then go back to M V C where it was the cheapest, and you should have just bought it in the first place to find out they'd sold out. <laughs>
2: But, uh, yeah, I know we've, like, it's, of course, we're the old dudes now, aren't we? Yeah. Like, back in my day, you had to check her out, and that was part of the fun, walking uphill both ways into every, everywhere you walked, you had to walk upstairs to get to the CDs, and they
1: weren't Blu-rays back then. That's how we burned off all those calories, so we could justify sitting down and just
2: watching films for the rest of the day. That's right, (laughs) and that's why you could justify eating a massive pack of uh, outfits or something when you were (laughs) playing the games, but... um. Yeah, uh, we did. We we did. In a in a sense, this is related to the game, but of course, it's what I think. What we're trying to encapsulate here is that it's a product of its era. Yeah. um, It was. It's one that I'm glad personally was, as we've mentioned before, was made after seven. Um, And um, I, I, well, according to the the trivia, it's part of the Criterion Collection, which, in my opinion, is is where it should be. So that's good. Um, and apparently, there's a laser disc version because that's one you mentioned all the different versions you you've seen or you've got earlier, but you didn't mention laser disc. I
1: never had a laser disc player.
2: Neither did I. So if anyone wants to send one in who's listening <laughs> to this, you might have one up in their attic, and then, you know, there's I, there's a guy on YouTube
1: called Oliver Harper who occasionally like does videos posting like the latest laser discs he's bought. I, they just seem like cause obviously they're LP size, aren't they? But they yeah. just seem like a lot of work.
2: I know but I think Ross about- had a laser disc in an episode of Friends back when I watched that and I was like, what he? the I shit remember. is a laser disc <laughs> But talking of MVC, I remember them having a section where it was the laser disc, and of course, well, it's the- behind the counter, wasn't it? They had them yeah. all up. You had like the Star Wars box set. You know like, what the shit is that Star Wars box set? There's two hundred quid. They're like yeah, it's laser discs, Pulp oh. Fiction, and you know all those ones. Yeah. It's just like man, these look at amaz- me, and just to look at well, look at one, it's just like so. This is technology of the future, but it's actually like dying. <laughs> so there's a great Siskel and Ebert episode on
1: YouTube where they're talking to Danny DeVito about laser disc. Because um, War of the Roses is coming out on it and he's talking about how exciting it is that you can put all this bonus stuff on it. Remember when people got excited about bonus
2: features as well? Yeah, so actually on the Laserdisc, apparently there's an alternative ending, which I do not know if it can be found anywhere else. It, maybe it's on the Blu-ray. I That's interesting. Decide, apparently it's not. It's only a slightly different alternative ending, but apparently he, he leaves the hotel and just gets straight into a taxi and just drives off without any kind of dialogue between him and Christine. Um... Which doesn't like he'd learned nothing, <laughs> yeah. Doesn't fundamentally change the ending, I suppose. Although it's, um, I mean, if should we discuss the ending now and we get back to it? Well, yeah, because I mean, it's, film? I mean, the
1: whole thing is to a certain degree, it's a, a morality, a morality play, isn't it? Yeah, it's you know, him going on a journey to learn. So, you know, the end is him opening up and accepting people and not being such a. I do love the thing with this. With her, the woman was like, Oh, I've got a- I can't remember his wife's name now. Um but yeah, so she's got her on the phone, and then his other secretary goes, That's your wife, and he's like, I know who she is. Yeah. <laughs> but the people are like, he's just so detached from anything. But um, yeah, so the end, well, you've got two endings, sort of, in the he finds out it's all part of the game, that his brother's waiting the other side with a bottle of champagne. Um they chainsaw through or all through the door um the door opens and he shoots his brother thinks he's killed him and then throws himself off the roof smashes through the thing i do love that i love the shot the fallen shot that cut between that and the 8 millimeter footage of his dad falling off the roof yeah i mean it's not subtle but it's beautifully done no, um it
2: doesn't to be it's it's it, it, as we mentioned before that it, it, it that whole 8 mil stuff is Classic show don't tell, and of course it's intercut with really crucial parts throughout the well, narrative for him, which exemplify his journey.
1: Quickly going off that, I love how it shows his dad's state of mind. The way that he keeps disappearing from shots, you see him constantly walking away from the family. You see yes. his smile drop. Yeah, you see all these things that are usually like the hidden moments, and you don't necessarily pick on up, up on them at the time. Yeah, it's only as you find out more that you know. Because you don't find out initially from that first lot of eight millimeter that his dad killed himself.
2: Um, Correct. And then but accompany, like um from a thematic um, but tonal perspective as well, accompany at that with the Howard Shaw yeah. piano pieces, that melancholic stuff, it just entwines beautifully. It's just all of those beautiful filmic elements coming together. That's it. Because his dad has no dialogue
1: at all. It's all done through that hastily cut. Eight millimeter footage, but it tells you everything you need to know about that character, and it's it's played perfectly in those tiny little snippets. Um, And then there's
2: there's a really hard cut from the opening. It's like a preamble essentially to the film with that eight mil, and then a hard cut to him at the present day on the phone.
1: No, he's washing his face. It's yeah, he's washed his face because it's a sudden. Michael Douglas is wet. (laughs) He pops (laughs) up because it's his morning routine, isn't it? Yeah, you know eats breakfast without sitting down and just thanks Ilsa for the food and then goes Um, but yeah it's just yeah so anyway he smashes uh, the way they shoot him going through the glass landing in the big airbag just the sort of that weird moment where he doesn't know whether he's dead or why he's not dead he's got people telling him not to open his eyes because it's breakaway glass but you know it can still cut him yeah. That sort of thing, and then he realizes that he's basically crashed into his own party.
2: Yeah, and, I love which, it, and also it's got the little like "Welcome to Nicholas Van" uh, yeah, uh, party somewhere, somewhere between the times of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if and it's got that great line where he it goes, "It's just as well you jumped because if you didn't, I was going to have to I check was going to have off. to throw you yeah. up." <laughs> because that's the other thing is, you know. We, I hope they
1: know he jump off the right bit of the roof in the right place. I know. Listen, the, for those, who, it's the fact that the thing um, the crash bag's got an X on it as well, and he hits yeah. it perfectly. I mean, it's complete logically. You just sort of have to go with it at that point, but
2: but that's listen. That's not the point of the film. It is. No, it exactly. is an absurd ending. Like you just go, oh come on, like there's no way in like the twist. And, but the point is the experience, and as I mentioned before about how. Um, there's no real uh dramatic irony at play here what's what's at play apart from maybe the the eight mil footage that's the only bit that the viewer sees that's outside of douglas's experience but of course those are memories of his anyway yeah so really what what he witnesses is what we witness. and i i thought tying into the start that first act in the opening it really economically sets him up as a villain actually um and, oh, yeah, because he's an asshole. <laughs> yeah, he is, he's horrible. Like when the when the assistant wishes him happy birthday and he turns to his other assistant and says, I don't like her. Yeah. Like <laughs> cold as ice, you know. Um, but he he does shift into being quite a sympathetic anti-hero. And it's partly through the writing, and it's partly through the direction, and it's partly through the casting, uh, and of course the acting. Um there's that weird thing though, that you know. He doesn't like that she wished him happy birthday,
1: but then when he gets home and Ilse has left him just a little cupcake with a candle in it, just the you don't see his face, but just the way his fingers sort of dance over towards it when he picks it up and puts it on the tray to take through.
2: But that, that in itself, um, it channels a lot of that late 90s um, kind of cultural paranoia. Yeah. And that's why I was so glad that it was made when it was made. And it was made in the point of Finch's career when he did it. And works to to my mind. Of course, we'll never know. But it works to my mind so much better as a late 90s film than an early 90s film.
1: It's very much it either had to be then or it had to be the 70s. I don't think it would have worked in any other
2: decade or time period. Yeah. Um, and it's really personified that that whole, that paranoia by the, the TV. Do you remember the news reporter? Yeah,
1: I love that. Yeah. I love how that cuts and just the little, again, the noise, the noise it makes or it's like, you know, eh, 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 and then cuts back to him actually doing the news. Well,
0: but what does that matter to a bloated millionaire fat cat like you? In other financial news, stock markets rose both domestically and abroad today after the announcement of stronger than expected earnings by several high-tech companies but dipped again, reacting to reports that Nicholas Van Orten had sneezed. Are you gonna spend the rest of the evening crying at that clown's mouth? I... I... I, I it's don't... It's frustrating for me if you don't, if you don't pay attention. What is this? This is your game, Nicholas, and welcome to it. I'm here to let you in on a few ground rules. You receive the very first key and others will follow. You'll never know where you'll find them or or how you'll need to use them. So keep your eyes open. How do you, you can see me? Let's save the questions till afterwards. How does this work? There's a tiny camera looking at you right now. It's impossible. You're right, impossible. You're having a conversation with your television. It's miniaturised. You know how dangerous that is,
1: Mister Van Orden. domestic Ken? How would they fucking do that?
2: <laughs> yeah, and there's a, there's a bit um, just before he doesn't notice where it mentions his name. Yeah, it's kind of just in the back, and we go. Did we? Did we?
1: Well, he did sort, you sort of. Yeah. Twigs that his name's been mentioned, but then assumes he just heard something, doesn't it? It's yeah. Like I say, there's gorgeous little bits of microacting from Michael Douglas in this part as well. Like I say, the hands going to pick up the cupcake. Um, I love his reaction to his ex-wife ringing him.
2: Yeah, Um yeah. So by him being set up as this villain, but also this kind of anti-hero character that actually grows in, we grow. I think we grow in sympathy for him um you've mentioned before about how it takes the viewer on the same the same journey that Nicholas is on um and it slowly does shift him into being quite um sympathetic because of that so yeah okay but I think most of us wouldn't put ourselves in a position of being such an a-hole as he is but because we can see that he is a human who's beginning to lose his mind and he is completely isolated be it through his own actions of you know he, he he begs forgiveness from his wife at the end and everything so it's heavily implied that all of these negative relationships in his life are because of his own actions yeah he's,
1: i mean i think it's to a certain degree is assholiness i don't think he means to be an asshole i think he's just so matter of fact that's how he is i mean it's still assholey but yeah i, I don't think he I mean most villains don't see themselves as a villain. I don't think he's a villain out and out kind of villain. Um mm, yeah. I think he's but, just a guy who, you know,
2: I mean Corporate villain. Corporate villain, yeah. Yeah. So he says, look, I don't care about it, it's all about like the 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 the, the pennies on the the dollar, me millions and that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, because when why. he goes
1: to fire ants and bear. Yeah. Which I love that bit where he can't get his briefcase open and then the next shot is him in the bus stop just beating the shit out of his yeah. briefcase. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, um uh, Michael we're... Douglas plays like sane guy saying insane things to try and prove to people that he's not insane. He plays that really well. Like when he's talking to his lawyer, when he's trying to when he's taking the police to um the CRS building and it's empty. Yeah. Cause it and is that thing. thing, it's like how do you like, you know. Say these insane things to sound like you're not insane,
2: and in the end, when he goes to presumably the embassy in Mexico, he just realizes that he's not going to win, so he just makes up a story, isn't it? He? Yeah, he's like oh, I was I was on holiday and I got mugged, and they're like, well, yeah, so, they really mugged you, didn't they, with that beautiful watch in your wrist? he has to give his watch up. But the so, um, that that because because he is essentially a proxy for us as a viewer because we don't know any more than him um I I I'm trying to remember what it was like to watch it the first time and I have a a, a memory of just constantly looking for clues and of course there's the CRS signs everywhere and um the, or lots of little' just peppered clues in and you're kind of like am I being paranoid here did I did I imagine this clue or the way that the actor acted was it just because it's a fiction film and I'm supposed to be led this way or is it actually a clue that Finch has put into this for me to pick up on um, which I think is really skillful because um, I did ask my wife at the end I said did you did you guess what was going to happen and she said the only thing that she assumed was going to happen was that um, Conrad was going to survive right. so that's the one bit where she went there was so many twists and turns by that yeah. point She's like well there's got to be another because the film hasn't ended yet So, because there's the the weird
1: thing that doesn't really get built upon so much is that they tell him that he wasn't successful in his application process for playing the game, which that whole application process is clearly designed to just piss him off,
2: yeah,
1: and wind him up. Um, but it doesn't really ever go anywhere. At no point does he say, Well, I wasn't supposed to be playing the game, they told me he says it once, I think, and then it's he doesn't question that the game has actually started despite the fact he wasn't successful in it
2: but when he when he becomes as we do we become invested in the fact that something is happening yeah everything becomes so suspicious that even his the scene in the I air- guess
1: the idea of him being told he's not successful in the game is that then he's never 100% sure that he is playing the game
2: yeah so and that's then,
1: that's what that does that's so i have basically answer my own thing
2: <laughs> but the bit yeah. when what, what I recall is when when he's in the airport and he's probably one of the points of, maybe it's a false climax, but when he really, really peaks suspicion and he, he, someone opposite him, who's in the green room at the end as well, I noticed on a second recording uh, watching, um, points to his top and he's got the leaky pen and it's this, uh, isn't it a CRS pen as well? Yeah, it's the, the pen they gave him um, and he, he's automatically suspicious that this guy because he's just seen the... Yeah, like, he's like can, can, can I help you? Yeah, and there's the <laughs> well, baby... He, he says it next, more in a yeah, determined. <laughs> yeah, that Michael Douglas way. That's it, perfect way. And then, of course, it's a leaky pen, or is it? And it's like so, so many things that seem. Yes, it seems contrived. Yes, it's it is totally contrived. This film, of course, it is. But if we're if we're distracted by the contrived nature of it, you're missing the point of the film, which is that's what I mean. And the first
1: time I went along with everything, like I say, it's. One of those films that in some ways suffers from... If it's like your favourite movie and you're watching it once a week, you're losing something every time you watch it. You may still enjoy it, but you are noticing more and more stuff. Like I say, i got millions of questions about how CRS must operate. Who was in on it?
2: <laughs> yeah, like... Because uh, uh, he was...
1: storms cool. into Anson's room and tosses Polaroids at him.
2: Yeah.
1: And Anson's kind of like, you know, it's cool, do you want to have lunch? I mean,
2: I've got nothing to do with this.
1: It's like, I think one of the, is the most
2: his lawyer egreg- in on it is well, one of the most egregious things, and that's the thing that you never know actually who's in it and who's not. Yeah. But one of the most egregious things is when they start opening fire on Christine's apartment. Yeah. And it might be squibs or whatever, but they for the people just who were neighbors looking out the window, going, Oh my god, there's there's like submachine gun fire going on in my street. This, where are the police? There's no police. At all, even the police that we see, the detectives are obviously in the green room at the end, yeah. so they're. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, of course this. But it's, but it's like the, the whole police. taxi cab thing. If he
1: hadn't put that thing in his pocket to be able to wind down the window. I mean, obviously like, they said they had divers in the water, but.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Thank God for uh, that. That. That document that you signed to say it didn't matter if he died or not. And yeah. I'd love to know at the end i love, again, it is quite funny when um, Nicky uh, Nicholas says to Comrade do you want to split the bill? And he goes, oh thank God, and he looks at it and we never actually see how much it is. But you can um, tell from his reaction that it's a shit ton of money It's a lot. I mean, it'd <laughs> have to be, you imagine the amount of people they'd have to pay off to be able
1: to pull all this stuff off.
2: Well that would be an interesting kind of addendum to this video to figure out just like, the best estimate as to how much. It's got to be, like, in the, the many tens of millions, That's I'd have thought. To, yeah. We're going to we're gonna um, be
1: firing blanks on an apartment building in this street. Yeah. I remember getting back from filming down at the docks and ringing the police and be like, yeah, because I rang them to let them know we were doing it, so they were aware of it, as, as you're supposed to do. And then I rang them at the end, and it was, like, 4 o'clock in the morning. I wasn't thinking. I was like, yeah, I just got back from shooting at the docks. I'm just letting you know it's done. They're like, you've been shooting down the docks? Yeah. I was like, oh shit, no, it was a film. Sorry.
2: Yeah. Um, I go But to there details. was a brief
1: moment where I was kind of like, if I hadn't actually clocked what they'd said and just gone, yeah, and just hung up, I'd have had a
2: swap team <laughs> through my window. Yeah. The deal's gone through as well, like the movie <laughs> deal. But yeah, <laughs> um, I won't go into details, but when I was a much younger, much more naive uh, teenager, we had an experience down at the docks as well, uh, where a friend was uh, doing some urban photography and uh, we'd gone down with some uh, BB guns, and we hadn't done what you'd done.
1: All oh, right. <laughs> and let's just say
2: we were very lucky that I'm here to be able to talk to you now about yeah. such a great film as the game. So lessons are learned. <laughs> just,
1: yeah. When when you do do it properly, just remember to clarify that it was film shooting. <laughs> yeah.
2: But with the with the uh, moving away from my my. Indiscretions as a youth. <laughs> By the way, I do instill very deeply into my students who do their photography and their coursework, film shooting, that uh, I make sure that they don't make the mistake I did. Um, yeah, the end is ridiculous, but it's relieving. I think because you yeah. are my my experience of remembering what it was like to watch it back is you do feel very invested into the character and sympathetic to him, so it's relieving. It's that, that was
1: one of my questions that I had was sort of briefly still on the ending. Should the film have ended with Nicholas killing Conrad? Well, no, the, and be ambiguous there. Would the, you. do you think people would have found that a more satisfying ending, just him then throwing himself off the building? You never actually see the party bit; you just cut with him falling mid air or something. Well, you could always. Do you some... think that's the ending that some people wanted? Because the, you could the always... people that felt betrayed by that happy ending, which again, I love that ending. I wouldn't. I can't think of another ending I'd want for the film. Because, yeah. like I say, you either have this incredibly bleak thing of he accident, he does accidentally kill his brother and then commit suicide. Which I imagine if it was made
2: now would probably be the bleak ending that you'd get. Well the listen, I wouldn't love people. a bleak ending now. I would ask those people if they've seen Fight Club. And if they saw Fight Club, how did they think about the ending of Fight Club? Yeah. Because both are oddly positive in their own way. Yeah. So Nicholas has basically not been ruined, you imagine he's got enough wealth to keep him going. He's been I, I imagine everything's attention. intact when he's done. Yeah apart from the bill that he shares
1: with there's, there's, there's the dangerous lawyer could have been like he's gone fucking nuts we need to take over this company now
2: yeah he's got power of attorney or whatever and he's like <laughs> yeah. um but uh of course fight club ends in a very um interesting very um, late 90s post-modern yeah. way um with the destruction of the financial systems that are there to put everyone back back to zero and essentially what happened with Michael Douglas's character in this was a personal version of that. Yeah. He was reset to zero and he regained his humanity. So in in that regard, to answer your question, personally, I keep, I keep the ending as it is because the film is ridiculous. The ending is ridiculous, but it's not about whether it's ridiculous or not. It's about the experience. And as a spectator to reflect on that and go, well, if someone who could be so removed from the human experience, which, by the way, wasn't his fault. He suffered a, tra- a trauma... That we're constantly reminded of when we see the shots of him as a kid in the eight mil footage, he's he's, he's, happily coming home and then seeing
1: his dad throw himself
2: off the roof of the house. His family house that he still lives in, exactly right. And his birthday—it's the day—it's the same age that his dad had died. So he's there is a degree of understanding that we can have for him, even if he is a bit of an a hole with it, right? Yeah. And then, but his personal discovery at the end, and also it's a really positive thing at the party. Of all the people that he's wronged, his ex-wife and the um, the previous colleagues who he'd fired, and all the other people that he'd been mean to, and they're all, ladies and gentlemen, Nicholas Van Orton,
1: yeah,
2: they will clap him and they welcome him back. And what you want to? I think it's very. It would be extremely bleak to just end it, just to go right. Everyone died, and there was the film would be pointless at that point.
1: Yeah. You know? That's it. You either have that end, or you have some really big, overblown. The way it probably would have ended in nineteen ninety three is him taking the company was corrupt, and he takes them down. Yeah, like you know, he takes CRS down at the end. That's the only like ways you could end it. Like I say, I really, I like a happy ending. Don't get me wrong, I, I like a satisfying bleak ending as well, but.
2: Yeah. I know it's just the age of yeah. at and
1: because I've got young kids, and I'm just kind of like, I just want the world to be happy.
2: <laughs> well, there's there's there is there. What's interesting with Fincher with both Fight Club and this one is there's resolution, but without yeah. resolution. So it's maybe the end of a chapter and the opening of a new one. And I, I I wrote a note here that said I thought that this shared some thematic similarities with Vanilla Sky. Yes. In the way yeah, I can see, that. I love that film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then. You know what I mean about how the the world is not what they thought it was, uh, and, and then, he's reborn by throwing himself off a building. And exactly, <laughs> and there's flashbacks to his youth as he's doing it as well. So I think Vanilla, I think Cameron Crowe probably did steal a little bit from Fincher for this one. I, I <laughs> can't remember
1: how Open Your Eyes ends, which obviously yeah. is the original Spanish, yeah, film on which Vanilla Sky is based. Um, yeah. Part of me does wonder though with this. It's like. Have you been through the game experience? Are you forever going to be slightly paranoid about stuff? <laughs> it's like if
2: you ever see the initial CRS somewhere, you're yeah. just going to be like, shit, I'm still in the game. Oh, well, talking of that. OK, so here's a bit of trivia that I can't remember whether I told you or not, but I taught Fight Club for about it's got to have been five or six years. It's the film, to be clear, just before yeah. you get struck off. Yeah. No, no, yeah. I mean, there's a reason I look so... They call me angel face now. <laughs> okay. No, it's not because I'm pretty. It's because I was in a fight club. Right, anyway. Um, yeah, so my on the previous specification of A-level film studies before Michael Gove came in and decided he was going to mix it all up, um, we, we, we taught noir and neo-noir films and also... Um, Fight Club was a set text to teach, so me and my students would watch it um, probably three times every year. And by the time we got to the final version, we'd we'd seen it thoroughly, and I taught it. And we'd just listened to David Fincher's commentary, and he says something really interesting about how um, the the you know the stage it's like a brain, Brian, a brain, a Brian station wagon that when Nicholas goes to the zoo to find the actor, yeah. And then the, the actor goes, "My car's at the front, and we'll drive to CRS." That exact same car it is outside of um, Lou's Bar, where Tyler Durden first and meets with the narrator, and they first start punching each other. It's in the car park, and Fincher said that. The reason he when he was on set, the reason he realized this is it still had the CRS sticker in the windows in the win- <laughs> So even like I wonder if Fincher was like, hang on, is CRS actually a real thing and I'm in it and this is my life, Matt? No. I mean, I'm not sure I buy
1: into the Michael Douglas being able to form a relationship with Christine. Or is it Claire as a real name? I can't remember what a real yeah. name is now. Yeah, from where does she say she's from? And then she goes she
2: I don't she, know she's going to Australia, isn't she, to do the next CRS job? She says something like Kansas. Oh, yeah, call up yeah. I've been doing this too long.
1: So, um, yeah, I'm not sure if there's a meaningful relationship there in the long term. No,
2: because
1: because again, she's an actress in a yeah, interactive game. At the end, <laughs> I mean, Ooh. it's a nice way to end the film. It's.
2: Did you allude to the fact that there was? A, a, is there a sequel? Was there a sequel plan? No,
1: I always. I mean, we'll get on to it at the end. I always ask about whether you'd like to see a sequel or a remake, or you know, if there are sequels, how you felt the thing. Goes. I mean, you could see it having a sequel. You know, yeah, like he would take it over, or you know, he finds out he's still in the game. Yeah, just... which would be the obvious sequel. I mean, I could see. You know that like you got like eight millimeter two that had absolutely nothing to do with the original film and nobody ever watched it, but it went straight to DVD because it was an easy market, or even like the Tremors sequels, things like that. Just those easy, loosely connected to the first film, or you know, not connected at all, but it's easier to slap eight millimeter two on it. Yeah. I could see like, you know, it wouldn't be Michael Douglas, it'd be I don't know, somebody who was hot, like Eric Roberts or somebody like that. Or, you know, um, Bruce Campbell, somebody who'd like to seem to corner the straight-to-DVD market. Um, Robert Patrick, that'd be the perfect one, actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it'd be something like that. But he'd now be playing Nicholas Van Horn. Like He's on a beach somewhere and he realises he's still in the game and he's got a... Christine's been kidnapped or whatever. Conrad's been murdered. I think you know
2: how I'd feel about that.
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm not <laughs> saying it'd be a good sequel, but I could see that'd be the right...
2: Route they'd have gone with it. Yeah, the, the, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I don't. As far as sequels go, classic Fincher, it's like you know. With I know Fight Club got a sequel, but it was a graphic novel. You don't need another yeah. one. Um, obviously, seven. I, I maintain
1: there's absolutely no shame in saying either one and done, or in the case of a trilogy or something like Indiana Jones, being like, no, we we went out perfectly. Yeah. Anything we guys. did now is just going to feel like an unnecessary coda. Exactly. And I'm not, obviously we've not seen Indiana Jones 5 yet, it might be one of the best films in the series, but... Mm, we we shall see, shall we? I was just using that as an example, but there's just... That's the other thing I miss to a certain degree is just being kind of like, you know, we did one really good film.
2: You know, we could have a convoluted idea for a sequel, like I just said, or we could just leave it the fuck alone. But that's going back to what we said before, is those mid-budget films that did take risks with directors yeah. who were fresh on the scene who did take risks themselves. They're... You know, they're a dying, they're they're a dying art because who's going to fund them? Who's going to want their? You know, they're going to want some return on their investment.
1: That's it. It would be a
2: Netflix original, or a... And I can't, as far as remakes go, aside from being pointless. Um, in this in this era, w- what I think audiences would be far too preoccupied with is exactly what we've. There's the subtext of this whole conversation that we've had. Is we'd be so preoccupied with that's not realistic, that wouldn't happen, let's pull that apart, that you would miss the point of the film. And the point was to have the experience that he was experiencing. Yeah. We just, we're too, I say we're too cynical in this donation. I don't know if I mean that, but what I I would say is we're too specifically interested in pulling things apart from um, uh, a superficial perspective. And ignoring what I think film is about, which is the experience of being human, because it's art, right? And this film, one of the things why I love about it is it's lived with me for 20 or so years, is because it is about that experience of being human. And it is art. It's a specific type of Fincher flavour of art. But if it, if it was to be, if we were just to take the story and implant it into 2023 and whatever, all it would be would just be an exercise in pulling it apart, shredding it to pieces.
1: Well, yeah, because, I mean, it, it, technology's moved on so much in regard to, you know, everybody's got a computer in their pocket now. All that sort of, even tiny things like that would change it. I mean, the closest it could possibly be like is, do you remember Eagle Eye, the Shia LaBeouf film? Yeah. We went to the cinema to watch it. Um, that's sort of the closest, and you know, that's probably the last, like you know, mid-budget paranoid thriller I can remember being at the cinema. To be uh, there possibly have been some since, but yeah, that that was quite effective in what it did with technology. Um, that was one cat saw on BBC about eleven o'clock at night. She couldn't sleep, and she was like, "This film's freaked me out." When all the phones on the bus start
2: ringing, yeah. <laughs> what was oh, what was that one with um, Jack Gyllenhaal where um, he was? time, time code or oh source code, source code. Yeah. So again, that was twelve years ago now, or something. Um,
1: it's like if they made Quantum Leap now,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and really horribly grim at the that's, end. That's
1: a film I have a real really? issue with the ending of.
2: Blah, that gross. That's,
1: that's that's something we could spoil another time maybe, but yeah, I, yeah. I won't spoil it in this one in case people are. No, I don't it, even want like,
2: to. I'm sorry, I brought it up. <laughs> I, I have a real issue with the end of that film. <laughs> yeah. Um, just as a final um, a bit of trivia that I thought was so funny especially because it's been Burns Night recently was that apparently there was a can of haggis, um, Fincher said this himself, allegedly, there was a can of haggis in every scene uh, it's because the cinematographer's nickname was haggis so <laughs> <laughs> and that would be another thing for like a rewatch is to try and see the haggis in every scene and if that was if it was CRS haggis or not I love that the phone number he
1: gets at one point I wrote it down but I can't remember what he had the phone number for Um, might have been the hotel he had to ring but the phone number is 555 1111 (laughs) we're not even trying (laughs) what a phone number Um, sort of quickly we sort of touched upon the sporting cast but um, we didn't really mention um, James Reborn as this actor who's the salesman that he first meets when he goes to the office. Yeah. He tells him he has to do the tests and that. He's so good in this film. Obviously, the only thing I knew him in before this was Independence Day. Yeah. In which he played a similar slimy guy. But he's kind of a likable slimy guy in this. He, you feel like he's a guy who's just got an office job. Like yeah. when he is asking him to hold his takeaway
2: food and, you know, do you want some? And when he's dancing at the end, he's got the, like, the party hat on and he's gangly and all... all he's got his Hawaiian shirt on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: I do love that everybody gives him little bits of information. Like, he tells him where he got his Chinese food from. Yeah. So that's how Michael Douglas knows where to go and look for him. Yeah. Because, I mean, I don't think it's an... It's not can't be an accident that the advert with him as a doctor comes on the telly. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like I say, the fact he tells him where he gets his Chinese food from, so he's got a lead. But obviously it's an innocuous bit of information that you don't take in.
2: To yeah. be honest,
1: if it was me, I'd have been like, shit, he said he got Chinese from somewhere. It's like
2: Bollocks, where? Where? Yeah, it's it's that classic. Kind <laughs> I do of...
1: love that thing of like a borrow yellow pages, you just rips it
2: out. Oh man, when it happened, I said I laughed <laughs> and I said, Lee, I love this bit, and then it ripped it off. And I was like, I haven't seen that in 20 years, and it still makes me laugh now. That's the post
1: credit scene I of him just returning it. Yeah, <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> like I didn't like an MCU-style mid credit scene. Yeah. <laughs> just didn't bring it back going, thanks for letting me borrow this.
2: <laughs> but the writing is tight. Yes, we're going to keep saying it's absurd. Of course, the plot's the, the absurd. The grand
1: plot is absurd, but the tiny details in it
2: yeah.
1: are perfectly done. Like you say, the CRS drops throughout... In various forms, either as an acronym, uh, words gone from my head now. <laughs> it
2: acronym kind of reminded
1: of, like, you know,
2: it, it kind of reminded me of company. the kind of Kaiser soze style clues, you know, that yeah. are peppered in there. And then when you, you know, you don't have to feel silly that you missed them, but to have it shown at the end, yeah, oh, you're right, yeah, okay, I kind of had a memory of that, yeah. You don't feel dumb having missed it, you feel pleased to have experienced it but
1: uh, yeah I mean I love the bit with where he confronts him at the zoo Lionel Fisher I love your work
0: okay please look I uh, got my kids get rid of them All right, guys, uh, uh, snack time All right, well, more, more snacks
2: okay.
0: uh, it was just a job I think personal, you know. I mean, play my part, improvise a little. I mean, it's it's one good. I need to talk to who's in charge. Nobody knows. Okay, nobody knows. <sighs> gets a big picture. Hey, Tammy, Alex, cut it out. Yeah, Tammy, what do they do? The that? Offices are empty. I need to find out where they are. Mm-hmm. Look they own the whole building. They just move from floor to floor. And you work for them, right? You can get me in. No, I can't. Yes, you can. You can tell them uh, the police called. Uh, You gotta speak to somebody. Tell them uh, I'm gonna blow the whistle on them. What whistle? There's no fucking whistle. This is very dangerous. I don't think that you understand.
1: Like he's got Michael Douglas with a gun in front of him, but he's also bollocking his kids for
2: throwing I know. stuff. And he, I, again, like, why did they do that? I knew you'd love that because when I was watching it earlier, I looked around at because yeah, why do they do that? Why do they? He's like he's got a gun and he goes, "I'm oh, very dangerous." And he goes, "Yeah, but what?" He's always oh, when the guy tries to carjack him isn't there, but yeah, I'm extremely fragile right now. <laughs> Perfect Douglas again. That is that is defense. That's, that's defense, yeah. Right there. yeah. Yeah, because I suppose.
1: What are we off the back of with this? It would be falling down and disclosure were probably the two big nineties ones. Yeah, Basic Instinct was ninety one, wasn't it? Yeah. So you sort of in the coming to the end of that, Michael Douglas
2: nineties, and that's what I mentioned. It's kind of like all of his best hits.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, like just uh, yeah. Like, you're right. This is Pete Douglas. Just rolled just nicely refined and rolled with the, even the Golden Gecko stuff that rolled into this one character. Was it even played? the romance in the stone kind of dry it's a
1: drier wise crack, but like you like you said, the thing with the shoe. where There goes a thousand dollars, like your shoes cost a thousand dollars. That one did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which makes um, you wonder does the other one cost a thousand dollars or was the other shoe a bit more?
2: Uh, or yeah. Less? And the it, well it's definitely worth less now, isn't it? But the um <laughs> The uh, the writing is, I think it's 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 tight enough, and the dialogue is good. Like we said, it feels quite natural. Like why do they do that in the zoo and that kind of stuff? Um, and it's almost almost not quite, but it's almost Aaron Sorkin stuff. Yeah, it doesn't have long rambling, you know, West Wing style soliloquies, but it is tight and it is it is it does its job. It's believable, I think in a film that is let's just say it's an absurd plot right but the conversations between comrade and Nikki and his ex-wife and even the um the guy in the embassy they feel at least real within movie universe if you, you know don't
1: you feel mean. like anything's wasted no like everything that, even down to like comrade booking phoning him up to Arrange a meeting with him under the name of Seymour Butts. Yeah. So it tells you that Conrad likes to mess with him.
2: I I had to look that up as well because, um, of course, my my reference to that would be like Bart Simpson. Of course, it yeah. would be a child of the nineties. But... I, I do love
1: when he tells his secretary to book the restaurant. And they go book it under my name.
2: Yeah. Again, <laughs> it, it's great dialogue. Um, but apparently, uh, skypes would probably know this. But apparently, that's from a book. That is given to scouts, and it's part of a compendium of stuff. And there's like a, a joke section in there, and uh, because it's under the bleachers by Seymour Butts, isn't it? Yeah, and that's part of apparently the Scouts of America. So it implies that these kids had been sent out about as far away from their dad as they could possibly go. Of course, um, Comrade had been sent to he must have been troubled because he'd gone to more than one college, yeah. Um, and he dropped just, out of more than one yeah, yeah it just suggests that um, yeah, he woke up naked on the beach of Ibiza which is the most annoying <laughs> pronunciation in the entire film I was like come on man you're supposed to be intelligent maybe you should have stayed at college um, but yeah so apparently that reference is from the American Scouts Samuel
1: I do like when they've broken into his house as well that they pretty much turn his house into a Joel Schumacher movie yeah. All that neon paint that looks like The Lost Boys and Batman Forever combined, <laughs> yeah. which I suppose as he directed Falling Down plays nicely into the defense thing.
2: Yeah,
1: um, do you, do you I like think... that he hides his gun in To Kill a Mockingbird as well.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. a nice yeah. little reference.
1: But, but yeah, just uh... trying to see what other notes I've got. See whether we have missed anything. But. I do like the uh, "I was drugged and left for dead" in, me- in the cemetery in Mexico, and all I got was this lazy t-shirt.
2: <laughs> yeah, so apparently I couldn't, I I couldn't remember what film that was from, but that whole Mexican thing was also a, a bit of a love letter from Fincher to another classic film, which I I just cannot think of the name um, right now. But
1: it reminded me, it's possibly not this film, but there's a bit in Easy Rider where they're getting high in a cemetery. Hmm. And that's sort of what came to my mind, but I don't think... I'm not saying it is that. Um, Yeah, I love... I love the reveal of the green room. I just love the idea of everybody sitting around. Obviously, they're sitting around waiting for the party to start, but...
2: Yeah, it's just... I mean, presumably, you know, having worked in a... like a high street style shop, I worked in a... as the... when I was a student I'm sure lots of the listeners. It's like the canteen when I worked at Tesco's in Quedfield. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's exactly that. It's, it's like a work canteen, it. isn't it? It's, it's just it's just where people go and they've got five minutes off and they're shooting the breeze. I, I love Michael Douglas's
1: little run when he's running after Christine in the parking uh lot at the beginning. Or well, you know after he's first gone after her. He's had the mm. note saying don't let her leave. Then yeah. they're in that park. They no it's when they've gone the ambulance has taken them. They've gone with the ambulance. And then all the lights have gone out, and she's walking we, off, and he just does this lovely little awkward run. Yeah, sort of, like keep up with her. Like he doesn't want to be with her, but at the same time, he doesn't want to be by himself.
2: Yeah, and then he'd, he'd go back to the the um office, and um he's like awkwardly allowing her to take a shower, and he's like not trying to lurk or lurk. He doesn't quite know what to do, but which is there cool. to
1: show the red bra, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that's so that when they
1: appear in the polaroids.
2: Yeah. And then he can confront her later in the apartment say, is is this your bra? And she kind of like laughs at him. But that scene with the um, ambulance, when all the lights go off, is great. I love how everybody
1: just runs as well. Yeah, scuffle off. It's it's not done like the lights go off and everybody mysteriously disappears. It is done like a group of theatre actors or, you know, jobbing actors.
2: Yeah, and that's what I was mentioning before about how this is almost like a behind... Almost like a behind the scenes of how films are made yeah. or how theatres made, because it is a film about people acting in this guy's life to create a reality. Yeah, um, it's a behind this. It's almost like a, a, a two point five D version of reality. It's not quite there. It's like you can just about see behind the curtain, but not quite. It's. I mean, it's horribly messed up what they do to it. <laughs>
1: You know, given that, you know, he, he has to throw himself off a building to reach the end of his thing. So they're constantly tapping into, like, his childhood trauma, which I suppose is them getting him to deal with it and, you know, be reborn as the new Nicholas. But it's just...
2: When you think about the stuff they do, it's horribly messed up. Well, that was one probably big criticism that Lee had at the end of it, where she said, I like the idea, but she said, there's no way I'd be that cool with people at the end of it. She said, I'd yeah. be absolutely losing my mind. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't just be sat at the bar with your brother uh, sharing the bill. She said she'd be she'd be just going insane, <laughs> which could be an, an, an like an alternative ending of this one if you wanted to shoot, shoot an alternative cut where it just failed and actually they sent him absolutely mad. <laughs> that's
1: what I mean the amount they put him through you, you would in the back of your mind forever be kind of like am I still in the game
2: <laughs> like, that guy's looking at me funny am I in the game I must admit ever since watching this film back like 20 years ago yeah, I'm not quite <laughs> sure
1: like you say it's like the Matrix thing isn't it I wonder if this is where that whole the game thing started you know when people when they see the words the game yeah it's this weird little internet thing i think i don't fully understand it because you know. well like most weird it's like it's new, a bit like Wamageddon, but you know
2: would baudrillard would love this this simulacra of um all meaning has been lost so yeah. we're a generation where was it was it you who told i'm sure it was you who told me an experience that you'd had in hmv where they were mark ronson cd was playing and it had just the just cover and some youngster of the time was probably about 35 now, He <laughs> said that you overheard them saying oh, here's this this song I really like, but I've heard a version with all guitars that's really rubbish and it was obviously Radiohead's Just. Yeah, possibly. You went, oh man, that was <laughs> just the day I died inside and that's, yeah, of course, maybe it was, maybe the whole idea of the game is that's what this meme is now or whatever, but all meaning has been lost. so <laughs> <laughs> but I, mean, I maybe think the, maybe the point of the game uh, probably is the point of the game. to fall into a baudrillard nightmare. <laughs> but I mean, I think
1: we've pretty much covered everything unless there's anything else you wanted to add.
2: No, I just want to just re- just say once again about how much I appreciated the score and I hadn't realized until you found it out during this recording that it was Howard Shaw. I wish I'd known that because that makes sense.
1: I meant to look it up because a lot of films I watch now, I'm like, I really like that score. Straight on Amazon or eBay to see if I can buy it physically. Because Spotify is shit for film scores. I've said it. Come at me, Spotify.
2: (laughs) And yeah, you and I, we've always appreciated our film scores, haven't we?
1: Oh yeah, I love a film score. And, you know, you put me onto film scores that I'd not really considered before, like the Alien
2: 3 film score. Mm. Yeah, considering amazing. how rushed that was I, yeah. I love the fact we always come back to Alien 3 and considering how rushed that final sequence were, Adagio, at the end of that I think was written in about two days or something, arranged in about two days That I was one just... of my
1: greatest finds ever was when CEX used to sell CDs upstairs, I found the Alien 3 score for like two quid up there oh, well, then, that that's, that's a good. bargain, and that's it wasn't good. damaged either, usually
2: stuff you got from CEX was being kicked across a floor Yeah <laughs> Rubbed in. This is probably probably what Fincher was doing up there. Finding any copy of Indian (laughs) Three, just booting it, raising everything. (laughs) But awesome.
1: All right then. Well, like I say, I think I think we've uh, covered the game. I think yeah. I think yeah. It's it's a film that has a weird reputation for being largely overlooked unfairly, partly by Fincher as well. Yeah. Uh, there's certain filmmakers that talk about films you're like no you really need to go back and look I do wonder whether he'd have like a Spielberg moment where he went back and looked at a film he hated and was like actually no I think we did alright with this well, yeah, I think I he did because so. like I say I don't know how else you could have ended it I don't really but, know where you could have improved on it
2: I hope so I mean who who knows how he feels and obviously he's the filmmaker so he's justified in feeling whichever way he does but I just yeah I mean to be fair we've all made stuff Been like,
1: admittedly we're not, not saying we're David Fincher either but everybody's done something creative and never been happy with
2: it yes but also as a creative you've got to appreciate that um when you put something out there for public consumption that it also becomes owned by the people consuming it and he i would like him if ever this little sign bite was ever to reach his ears if anything i'd just like him to know that he does have people out there who appreciate what he did for for both the game and for Alien Three, actually, yeah. and, you know, not knowing—that's
1: why I think it's a great chain that he doesn't really talk about. Hmm. So I love some t certain filmmakers. Who are like, I don't really care what you're going for. I like the film for this reason. I don't really need to know whether I'm right or wrong in liking it for that reason. But there's some filmmakers, I think the filmmakers that refuse to talk about it, you're instantly more intrigued. The ones that don't yeah. shut up about their films.
2: <laughs> yeah. And that can, of course, work negatively. So it's a bit like where, you know, certain actors become problematic as time goes on. Yeah. Uh, Won't mention any names. I'm sure your listeners can allude to some. Uh, (laughs) But the problem is that you you, do you then just write them off? Do you write the films off that they were in or produced or acted in or or co-wrote or whatever? And the answer is no, they're pieces of art. They exist in their time. We're all human beings. We're all flawed. Some Some more, some less, whatever but just appreciate the art, but appreciate the film. and What's Or it? not appreciate it. Appreciate it or don't appreciate it on its own merits. And for the, for this particular film, I really appreciated it. And I was very glad that you agreed to talk about it.
1: Yeah, no, I was like really glad. Like I said, really pleased when you picked it because it was really nice to just revisit it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's nice to have an excuse to go back to a film because I possibly, I don't know when I would have gone back to this film. It doesn't show on TV that often. Yeah. If and ever. I had no idea
2: it was on Netflix. It was just because I... No, I didn't. It was only because I was like, I'll just... I always check to see whether it's on streaming before. I have to go and dig the disc out. Yeah, well, that's what I did. Because <laughs> otherwise, I was if I couldn't... I knew I had it on DVD, but I didn't know whether I'd filed it away or something. I was going to have to drive to my office and get that Blu-ray that I showed you in the picture. <laughs> and it was going, oh, man, you know. So... Well, at least it's on Netflix. That's a good thing. That means people can actually go and watch it if it's on by the time this goes to air.
1: Yeah, well, I'll put in the end outro bit. I always say where you can find it. So hopefully it will still be on Netflix. That's the problem with Netflix. When it first came out, I got rid of a few DVDs because they were on Netflix, not early days of Netflix, not understanding that they'd rotate films out or lose the license to show them. Yeah. There's a couple of films. I'm like, shit, I had that on disc and I got rid of it because it was on pissing Netflix. Even uh, Disney definitely...
2: Plus don't keep things on, there. Yeah. And actually, you know, like uh, with um, a show like Andor, I'm yeah. desperate to get uh, a, some sort of physical copy of that, but it would probably never happen.
1: No, it's... I mean, the Star Wars completest in me that likes to have everything physical. I just, you know, what happens if Disney Plus disappears one day?
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this that plays video games or has had a console or whatever will know how things like the Nintendo system worked with the virtual console and God knows what else. And you have to buy the same game about 500 times for each platform because they keep reinventing the marketplace. And
1: We've well, only got to yeah. look at something like Final Space on Netflix, which Warner Brothers are completely erasing. But once the license ends with it being on Netflix... It's like Is an it? animated series. Right.
2: Yeah, raising, it's, re- are it's one of their tax also, write-offs,
1: so it'll just be gone oh, completely. Ta-
2: oh, not another tax write-off. Yeah it's, yeah, it's one of those ones. So it's a completed
1: series, but because I think they might have released one series on DVD in America. Yeah. but Otherwise, you've got nothing. There'll be no evidence of it.
2: Yeah, well, of course, the, the Bat, Girl one was a classic one, wasn't it? So it, yeah. it, it still exists, but it will only be allowed legally to be seen if someone pays the tax. And no one ever got so. um, But I also read. I think it was yesterday or the day before that Arrested Development is coming to. Is it Disney Plus? Um, Yes, because
1: it's a Fox series, isn't it?
2: And because of that, the Netflix the final two series or the seasons the last two will cease to exist because they were Netflix originals. Shit! I didn't watch the last season. so. So yeah, you've got about. Maybe a week left to watch them. I'm not quite sure. But and by the time anyone's listening to this, sorry.
1: Yeah, it's they've got gone. a time
2: machine. <laughs> it's another thing that is this is why you want physical media.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's,
2: yeah. well, I mean, we don't know what's happening with the
1: Netflix Marvel series that are now on Disney, Plus, but will they eventually be retconned out of existence?
2: Well, maybe. Or, you know, the alternative, if everyone just goes to streaming, once it all disappears, we'll just go back to like we, what we were in our earliest. Ages before civilization, and it will just be people like you and me telling people about films. It would just be oral tradition.
1: It'd be like Rain of Fire where they're acting out Star Wars for the kids. Yeah,
2: exactly. And let <laughs> yeah, me I made ask a you, rain of this, fire is reference. Is that what you want? Me and Stu, him being Padme and me talking about sand. Is that what you want? Because
1: that that's we'll what it. you'll get. We're not afraid.
2: Yeah, that's what you'll get. <laughs> It won't be from the it won't be from the perspective of two droids neither. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's that. From the perspective of the Sam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like getting in people's bits either. <laughs> and I shall say no more on that. So I, I think on that I think on that note, it's
1: it's the finest segue we are ever gonna get to uh, <laughs> the these uh movie of your life questions that I like to ask guests that have been on before. Because we've done the PIVO ones, haven't we? All right. So, movie of your life questions then. So, good news Hollywood has greenlit a movie of your life and they've given you creative control. But they want to know the following things Will the film be fact, fiction,
2: or a mix of the two? All right. So, I'm going to cheat with this one a little bit. Sorry. Uh, I'm going to say, Hollywood, if you want a movie of my life, you've got to take two films. Um, As in answer to your first question, well, the viewer will have to decide that. Wink, wink.
1: I like the idea that we get like the glossy Baz Luhrmann-Elvis-type movie and then the gritty Netflix documentary
2: going (laughs) into the seedier side behind the film. (laughs) Well, you'll see see where I'm going with this. You'll see. It's slightly self-indulgent, forgive me. Right. Right. I mean, it's a movie of your life. If you
1: can't be self-indulgent with the movie of your life, then... (laughs) (laughs) uh,
2: What genre is it going to be? Okay, so the first film will be a fly-on-the-wall-style documentary, uh, actually a mockumentary, uh, something like Spinal Tap or Curb Your Enthusiasm. And um, it would be actually the behind the scenes of the making of my real film. Um, yeah. So, again, sorry, I mean, go on. Terry Gilliam lost in the mantra vibes. Yeah, this, that, that, exactly. So it's a very, like I said, I love my whole postmodernistic kind of self-referential stuff. And, um, you know, I love things like Curb, Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I still have, my bookshelf over here, see the yellow spine there. Oh, the curve book. Yeah. The Kerr I, I, I broke mine to, out a little while ago. My birthday from about eight years ago. I've still got <laughs> it right there. I keep it very special. So um my basically, right, I've got this. It's not a big plug because I don't want to give it all away or anything, or even a bit of it away. But the real film is this project that I've been working on for like 15 years now. And um it will probably probably never see the light of day. Uh, but I've made a little bit of progress over the last couple of years on it. Uh, of course, it's evolved massively since. But um, one of the things is I've recently roped in one of my my family members who's very talented, kind of graphic artist and everything. And he's gonna he's agreed, um, kind of naively actually, to help me do it. So I kind of like have to have to go ahead and do something about it. Um, but like no spoilers. It's basically like a, a like a hard sci-fi and it brings in all of my favorite influences from sci-fi lit- literary, uh, literary references and film references and things like that. Um, and it would be epic if only I could write it, but I don't think I'm good enough writer. I'm more of an ideas guy. Right. So that's that's the film. That would be the serious kind of like you're right, This is the serious film. This is why I've been put on this planet today. But the film that you're asking me about would be me trying to make this thing, and I'd obviously be very, uh, well, like Spinal Tap or Curb. Right. All right then. Who's playing you? Right. So I guess if it if it's me, then uh, a lot of heavy lifting is going to have to be done from a supporting cast. Um, but if not, someone like Rain Wilson or, uh, yeah. Someone suitably nerdy, I suppose.
1: <laughs> right then, who's playing your love interest? This is either your real life partner or one that's made up for the purposes of the film.
2: Well, we said we said earlier, I think possibly before the recording started, I thought you'd guess this, and from previous conversations we'd had on the in your very your show, I wonder if you can guess it. I don't know. Nicolas Cage. I mean, <laughs> that's not a bad guess, actually. But no, when I say it, you'll go, "Oh yeah, of course it was." So you know I love Tom Cruise. Yeah. And my wife, my wife won't mind me saying this, right? Um, but for all my never-ending, lifelong support and adoration of Tom Cruise, I think he owes me one and uh, a bit of a laugh at himself. And I know how how you know protective he is about his relationships and everything. And I just thought, what a great Thing it would be for him to be my love interest in my (laughs) film, considering I love him. So the feeling should be mutual, and I know he's a great actor. So at least he can pretend it. (laughs) Right then, who's directing the film? All right. So if if I couldn't, which to be honest would be the point, but then again I'd hopefully be directing my real film. Um, Well, like the real film would be directed by Fincher and or Nolan. So maybe a collaborative affair. And I've got to say, I'd love to see um, Fincher Direct go back to science fiction, hard science fiction, and have another proper stab after so many decades has passed at really good sci-fi. Yeah. But for the one that we're referring to, the the kind of piss-take one of me, um, I'd love it to be the Cone Brothers. Nice. Yeah. Something like just real nice twist Barton Fink style crap at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Right then, uh, who's doing the score and or soundtrack a la a
2: Prince Batman soundtrack or Madonna's Dick Tracy tie-in album? Yeah, I'd like that question, actually. So the um, the real film would be like an epic collaboration between someone like Hans Zimmer and Radiohead, because I was always so disappointed that Radiohead didn't get the Spectre song for... I thought it was so good. Uh, Did you
1: watch the Bond music documentary that was on Amazon? I didn't know. where they went into that, which apparently the reason they didn't get it is because they played the song at a live thing. Yeah. So then the Bond people wouldn't take it because it had already been played somewhere. Oh, is that it? So then they went off. Is that it? They went off Uh and wrote another one, but by the time they came back with the new one they'd written, they'd signed Sam Smith up instead.
2: Well, like I personally don't mind the signed Smith one, but the Spectre one was just... I think it was... I remember hearing... The thing
1: in that documentary is Sam Smith, like, yeah, I went and I wrote it in like an hour. (laughs) Yeah, and everybody in the back of their mind is like, "Yeah, you can tell, Sam." Yeah, I it mean, fine. It,
2: it's fine in the opening right. credits, but as a standalone song, it's pretty dreadful. Yeah, I mean, it's like, like you say, it's fine. It does the job. It's fine opening it, credits song, right? So but it, 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 but... I, I don't mind it opening. It's weird with some Bond songs. It's kind of like over the opening credits, not
1: bothering me at all. As a standalone song on the radio, it just makes me want to smash my face into the
2: steering wheel. But um, <laughs> hey, like I unashamedly. Radiohead is one of my favourite bands yeah. of all time and that song, I think I heard it, it was released on Christmas Day on SoundCloud Clyde or something like that and I remember listening to it all the, like, we gone over to the in-laws and they they were just preparing for Christmas dinner and I went into a room on my own and listened to it and went bloody hell, this is amazing You can tell uh, in
1: that documentary as well that Daniel Craig is gutted that they missed him on um, Radiohead for like that much
2: Oh, oh. um, so so yeah, um, Hans Zimmer, you know he's he's fantastic at stealing other people's work and then repurposing it and recreating it in a really really brilliant way. And I think he and and he's collaborated with so many other people in the past and done such an excellent job. So that would be the the big you know my my concept that will never actually get made, but let me pretend it would. Um, but the mockumentary one would be just some unapologetic. Kind of, if it wasn't goofy, Your enthusiasm style, ding, 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 you know that kind of stuff. It would be something like collection of '90s alternative rock tracks, like something you'd hear in the film Empire Records or something like that. Just something yeah. that makes me happy from an era of when everything was just all those nostalgic things that you and I always remi- um, reminisce like about. Like the single soundtrack, a nice mix of Pearl Jam, Alice in oh, Chains, man, all that yeah. Seattle movement. <laughs> Exactly. No, I did. I did actually think of you know Pearl Jam's obviously one of my favourite yeah. bands of all time as well. Then Sain Garden and all that. Um, but uh, unless it would have to be all original tracks, I thought that. Um, but yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing. So just, but awesome. the Empire Records ones very easy going. Yeah. You know, just background stuff.
1: <laughs> my one of my bosses at HMV whenever he'd interview people would be like, right, two things to get straight off the bat. It's not like high fidelity and it's not like Empire Records working here. <laughs> Yeah. And, and then he straight. could tell from their reaction to that whether they were going to fit in or not. If they were <laughs> like,
2: mm. <Yeah. laughs> what was yours? Like, what? Uh, is, he okay, didn't interview you... me.
1: He came after.
2: I'd already say, got the wait, job your, there. So your one was like, I don't care about that. What's the discount? That's it. All yeah. I care about is the discount. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and who's going to help me carry all these things to the car? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all
1: right, and, and last question: What's the title of the film?
2: I had fun once. It was awful. <laughs> nice, yeah. And that's not a re- that's not a reflection on my experience with you this evening. But I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that'll be the review on the podcast. <laughs> 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 well, I just I mean, look to be honest with you. I can't think of titles for but this film. I've been thinking of uh, it's been since film school. I've been trying to write it, so it's at least fifteen or something years now, and I still don't know what I'm going to call it. So what did I do when I saw this question? I just looked at memes, like names of memes. So that was just one of the memes I thought, and I thought that'll do. <laughs>
1: that, that'll do, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Awesome. Well, cheers for that. I'm going to play the curb music at the end. I think. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Bit <of> frolic. <laughs> and then you yeah. have to do a, a glitchy sound, like on the TV, just in case your your viewers think they're not in the game. Which, by the way, you still are. Don't there's there's Cameras in the fire detector just don't That's look at them.
1: John. Yeah, John. Yeah, you, John. You're <laughs> in the game, John. That's right. Consider That'll mess him morning. up. <laughs> yeah, I really John. hope that doesn't backfire on us.
2: <laughs> yeah. hey, John, can you realise the, the all of the effort we went through to record this just for you? <laughs>
1: Awesome. Cheers for coming on, man. I really enjoyed it.
2: Oh, thank you once again for a lovely invite and uh, indulging me for my uh, the bit at the end as well. That was very self-indulgent.
1: No, no, no. It's it's all good.
2: Isn't film itself
1: just self-indulgence anyway? Yeah, well, that's why I got into it. Exactly. (laughs) Nobody else was going to indulge me, so.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Not even in the fight club. They won't even look at me now. Waste of meat now. I've all been used up Spud out rubbish Two you grow some bitch tits mm, Well as you can see I'm working on that Doing quite well
1: <laughs> Awesome on that note Cheers Ross
2: Thank you very much Steve Sweet See t- you next t- time t- t-
1: t- Bye. I, um, uh, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye mm, Thank you
0: I, I uh... No I never did ask you your name Did I No it's Claire. So you, uh, catching a plane and... Yeah, we have a, a gig starting next week in Australia, so... I'm gonna some more sheep. Just a walk on this time. Well, when you get back, um... Uh, maybe we can you know, we can have some dinner. You don't know anything about me? No, I So you tell me. Well, what... Well, Where are you well, you're from. Oh, um... Originally. Oh, Oklahoma. Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this way too long. You know, um, would you like to have a coffee with me at the airport?
1: That was The Game. And why not? I'd like to thank Ross for joining me in the episode to talk about the film. At the time of recording, The Game is available in the UK on DVD from Universal and on Blu-ray from Arrow Films, or you can stream it on Netflix. It's also available to rent or buy digitally from Prime Video and YouTube. We put a shout out on the socials for your thoughts on and memories of seeing the film, and we had a reply on the And Why Not Facebook group from Jamie Pocket, who said, Great film. Very underrated. If you'd like to let us know your thoughts on the film, you can get involved in the conversation wherever you see this episode posted on our social media channels. So if you aren't already, give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram, or why not join the And Why Not group over on Facebook? Not only will we be kept up to date of what episodes are coming up, and have a chance to contribute to them, but we also post our picks of three great movies to check out each week on Freeview TV. If you fancy joining us, just search And Why Not Pod on social media, or We'll check the links in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and be bothered to do so, please give the episode a share and tell your friends about it. And why not give the series a follow or subscribe over on Acast, or wherever you listen to the episodes. If you're feeling super generous, would be grateful for a rating or a review, if you have a second or two to spare, or don't, we're just grateful you spent the time listening to us. If you've missed any and why not episodes so far, you can find them on our podcast channel over on Acast, Apple Music, Spotify, Google Pods, Good Pods, or on our website at hauntednerds.com. In the meantime, we'll be back on Tuesday the 2nd of May, where I'll be joined by Andy Clift as we discuss the 1993 animated movie classic, Batman, Mask of the Phantasm. But until then, this has been a Nerds and Hunts themselves production, and I've been Stuart Moraine. Thanks for listening, and remember, discovering the object of the game is the object of the game. Bye for now.